space up in, in Peshtigo. Um, I mean, out of God's just graciousness, while Sharice and I were planning on coming back to Marinette, we had no idea that this tall, lanky, skinny dude and his family from Dallas, Texas, Dallas, um, was also stirring in his heart for some crazy reason to come to Peshtigo, Wisconsin. Um, and from there, a, a friendship was forged. Um, and so I am delighted that he is able to come and bring us the word of God this morning. So as we listen to him, he might not ask of it, but pray for him this morning. Pray for him. So I'd like to ask Robbie to, to come up and bring God's word. Robbie is the worship pastor at Faith. He is a, a man of God and, and a man of deep prayer. So I look forward to hearing what you have to say. Don't deserve that introduction, but uh, I... I am uh, I am so glad to be here with you guys this morning. It's a privilege. It's a privilege to be able to visit with your family this morning, and uh, and an extra privilege to be able to um, bring the word of God. So I uh, I'll I'll start with a confession. Um, Max is uh, Max is a better planner than I am, and so he actually asked me months ago if I would be available this particular weekend to, to teach, and uh, and I thought like sure, whatever, like I don't have anything planned that far in advance. Great, um, and then it, and then it happened to turn out that my in-laws uh, are in this weekend, so it's just me. I was hoping my whole family would be down here next time. You guys will hopefully get to meet my whole family, um, but. Because he is such a great planner, he went, once I committed to this particular weekend, he was already able to say, great, you're going to be teaching on Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 11. I was like, okay, awesome. And, I, and, I, uh, and, and, and then my, my confession is, um, I was a little disappointed. I kind of felt like he gave me a dud, I'm not going to lie. I know, I know, technically we should all feel like there's no duds in Scripture, but I know I'm not the only one that, that comes to those passages and thinks, you know, all right, I already know everything there is to know about this one. Let's flip past to something interesting, right? And so I come to this passage, and I'm looking it over, and I think, okay, some, you know, sick servant, centurion, ask Jesus, Jesus heals the servant. It's pretty, pretty straightforward. Uh, and, and then over the course of the next couple months, uh, as I as I'd keep coming back to the passage and, and reading through it, and praying through it, and, and and praying through it with with the prayer of God, this is this is your self revelation, right? This this is not like this is not the rule book for life, or 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 it's not about me actually at all. This is all about Him. This is His self declaration of this is what I want you to know about who I am and what I'm doing. So if that's the case, there are no duds. In this, I am missing something. If this seems too straightforward, too plain, I am, I am uh, too familiar. I'm familiar with it in the wrong ways. If if I am not dazzled by by the display of who you are in this, and and looking at it through that lens, it began to leap off the page to me. And and I uh, 
I assume, I don't, I don't ever assume I'm the first one to figure anything out. In fact, I'm usually the last one. So some of the things that I'm going to share with you this morning may be the things that you have always seen in this passage as you read it, but I am excited uh, for the ways that God has, uh, has revealed things that, that, that I, I just didn't see before because I wasn't looking at it with the right eyes. So I'm going to pray for us before we get going, and, and then we're going to tackle this passage Father, I am, I am so grateful for the privilege to be able to be with your people, with your church, and holding your word in our hands. Don't allow us to uh, take this for granted, God, that we get to hold your self-revelation in our hands. Don't allow it to become commonplace to us. Don't allow it to become mundane or, or a drudgery. God, help it uh, every, every moment that we spend in it to speak life and to reveal the enormity of who you are, to stir our sense of awe in you and, and that you would give us, through your spirit, spiritual eyes to discern spiritual things, to see the things in your word that we can't see apart from you, that our intellect will never grasp alone, our reason will never grab hold of, but your spirit alone, as it awakens our hearts and opens our eyes to see the beauty and the wonder and all that you are in it. God, help us to do that this morning. Spirit, we know that you are with us, we know that you are for us, and, and we trust that you will fulfill your promise to remind us of all that Jesus is, all that Jesus said, all that Jesus is doing. Jesus, it's in your precious name alone that we pray, and for the sake of your name that we gather. Amen. So, I'm going to read through the passage straight through, and then we'll come back and, and walk through it together. So it says, after he finished all of these sayings, these sayings are the Sermon on the Mount that he has finished preaching. After he's finished preaching this, he entered into Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not too far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So, so what is happening here. Okay? We, this, this grand sermon uh, it has, has just taken place, and, and, and Max has been walking you through that over the last several weeks, and, and, and so Jesus' teaching is fresh on everyone's mind, right? Hopefully, because it just finished. So the, the, the teaching that they should be slow to judge others and quick to sincerely love others, even those who persecute them. Uh, to not equate earthly blessing with, uh, with a guarantee of heavenly security, to cultivate hearts that yield the fruit of the Spirit, and, and all of that built on the foundation 
the firm foundation of Christ and his gospel. That's all they've heard. And coming out of that, Jesus walks into the nearby town and, and is approached by a very unlikely person. Right? Or unlikely, at least seemingly unlikely, if you haven't been listening to everything he's just been teaching about what the kingdom is actually like, then you would not be surprised at all that as this centurion, or actually more precisely his ambassadors, his representatives that he has sent, come and make a request of Jesus. So a centurion is a mid-level military official. He's in, the, the, in, in a military of an occupying force that has seized control of the country of Israel. So at the time, uh, the, the, Romans are not, the, the Jews are not thrilled to be under Roman occupation. Um, and, but, but this centurion is unique because they like him. Right? It's the Jewish, it's the leaders of the city, the Jewish elders that come to Jesus and say, you should really help this guy. He's pretty awesome. They, they like the leader of the occupying force. How, how nice of a guy do you need to be for the people of the country that you have invaded and are oppressing to think you're a stand-up guy? Right? So they come on his behalf and say, yeah, you should, you should help him. They describe him as loving the nation. They say that he has built their synagogue and, and so the elders of the city approach Jesus and, and declare that this man has earned Jesus' service. Right? This man is worthy of Jesus. The, the Gentile military leader of the occupying force, on the other hand, understands that he is decidedly unworthy of Jesus. He seems much more self-aware and and much more aware of who exactly Jesus is, right? So what we see here, we see the elders coming and declaring, no, no, this man, we declare this man worthy. And the man himself saying, no, 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 I am, I am totally unworthy. And we see that he understands how authority works. He kind of goes into this little description. He says, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. So he understands that he both has authority, but that it's, only, it's been given to him. He only has what has been given to him, right? He says, I'm set under authority. And then I have people who have been put under my authority. And so he knows that he has this, but that it's, he only has what has been given to him. And that while he's been given some authority, he is also under it himself. Are we tracking so far? This is what he's, this is what he is understanding. And then even more remarkably, I don't know if you picked up on this, but he assumes he's using this to reference, Hey Jesus, I understand authority and I understand that you have it, right? And Remarkably, the authority that he evidently understands Jesus to have is over all of creation. Right? Because he's saying, I understand, like, just like how I can tell my troops, hey, go over that hill, and you do that, you, you can tell those germs or those cancer cells to scram, and they'll, they'll immediately respond. And, and you don't even have to be local to do that. Don't even bother coming into the house. You can do that from, from wherever you are. His understanding of Jesus' authority is profound. And, and I would even argue is unmatched in all of the Gospels. I, don't, I can't think of another person in all of the Gospel narratives that has this clear of an understanding of Jesus' authority 
and what he's able to accomplish in that. And this is in, this is in a Roman Gentile military leader of the occupying force. We don't, we don't even know... Like, we can't assume this guy is saved. We don't can't assume that he has a saving faith in Jesus Christ. But we certainly, what Jesus is pointing out here, this guy understands me way better than the people who should understand me most. And even more confusing to me is if anyone should be disturbed by Jesus' authority, it would be the military leader of the occupying force because it would be completely rational for him to be a little unnerved by the idea of the sudden appearance of an incredibly influential leader with unnatural power, right? That, that would seem like that might be a threat. But I don't know about you, but I don't read any sort of intimidation from this guy. He doesn't seem bothered by Jesus. And while it's certainly conjecture, I don't think it's too far of a leap to say because somehow he seems to understand how Jesus chooses to use his authority. And so his expectation is not, he assumes, well, you have the power over nature, you can heal this guy. And we don't see any sort of sense of him assuming that he's going to use that against him to overthrow his power or his authority. He seems to assume that Jesus uses his authority to demonstrate compassion and to heal those who are suffering. The Jewish elders, by contrast, seem to think they are the authorities. Right? We see over and over again in the Gospels that they expect Jesus to prove himself to them, right? Because they are the authorities, and so Jesus has to prove himself to them. They, in this particular instance, seem to think that they're the ones who declare worthiness, right? So they declare to Jesus, we have declared this man is worthy. His deeds, his actions have been deemed worthy in our eyes, and so you are now compelled to bless him because they are, he is worthy by our estimation. And, and, and they evidently believe that their influence would motivate Jesus to do the right thing, right? Since we have determined and declared that he is Worthy, they have, he has earned your blessing, Jesus. So now, hop to it. But the centurion responds with a remarkable humility. He responds with, I don't, I don't even think you should be in my house. I don't, I don't deserve for you to be in my house. He seems to understand how grace works. That grace is not something that you have earned or you deserved. It is by definition undeserved blessing, undeserved favor. And so he's not asking, he's certainly not using, exercising his authority to make a demand of Jesus. He's submitting to Jesus' authority in this and saying, I... I I'm asking for your grace. I'm asking for you to display your power, your compassion in an act of blessing that I don't deserve. I don't even deserve for you to be in my house. But with confidence and with boldness, ask Jesus to do what he seems pretty convinced he's capable of doing. What's Jesus' response? 
It says, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Jesus is amazed. And what is it that amazed him? Was it his kindness to the nation? Was it his love for the people? Was it his building of the synagogue for them? No, Jesus answers the question for us. I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus is amazed by his faith. Not by his deeds, not by his reputation, not by his accomplishments, not by his authority, not by his position, by his faith. And faith, in particular, in Jesus' authority that prompts the man to assume Jesus' superiority, assume Jesus' miraculous command over nature, and assume Jesus' desire to demonstrate compassion on a servant. That's, that's pretty extraordinary faith. That's a lot of assumptions to make. Now, the, he should be making these assumptions because all of them are completely accurate. And then Jesus then affirms them by putting that authority on display and instantaneously healing the servant. We don't know what the servant had. We just know that he was at the point of death. That's what he said. So whatever it was, it was bad. It wasn't allergies. He didn't have a cold. He was at the point of death and instantly he is healed. So Jesus affirms all of the assumptions that the centurion had and redefines it. That these were not assumptions, these are faith. These are a demonstration of his faith in my authority. So what, what do we see about who God is in this? If this book is his declaration, that should always be the first question we ask. Don't always start with, well, where do I see myself in this? Or what is this teaching me? Because ultimately, this book is not about you and me. It is about the author. And so our first question should always be, what, does, what do I see about who God is in this? How does this help me understand him more? In, in particular, about Jesus, because this book says that Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. He is the perfect representation that what I say, the Father says. What I do, the Father does. And so, what do we see in Jesus, and how does that affect our understanding of who the Father is? But we see that the centurion was pretty much right in all his assumptions, right? That he does, in fact, have authority over all of nature and everything else. That is the authority that the Creator has. That He does, in fact, demonstrate compassion on the suffering. He heals the servant. And we see that He values faith above our deeds, above our reputation, above our accomplishment. It is faith that impresses Him. How, how do we respond to that, church? How do we respond to that understanding of who Jesus is and, and, and what he does? And, and three, three primary things stood out to me as, as I've been praying through this for the last couple months. First is faith in, in Jesus' authority. 
Not just in Jesus in general, but, but specifically in Jesus' authority. Absolutely kills our sense of entitlement. There's no, it become, entitlement becomes utterly irrational when we truly have faith in Jesus' authority and who he actually is. Right? And the result of that motivates submission to him. Jesus is Lord with a capital L. He has absolute authority in heaven and on earth. His words are not helpful suggestions to be considered alongside other opinions. It is a declaration of universal truth. It is eternal fact. And true faith in this, and, it, and let's be honest, it requires faith. Why? Because I'm the one standing here right now, not Jesus. Right? Jesus is not standing in front of us in, front of, in, in bodily form. We are not beholding him in, in his absolute, infinite, glorified state right now. And so it requires faith. It's easy to believe in someone's authority when they are right in front of you, lording it over you. It takes faith to stop and consider and remember Jesus' authority. And faith in that makes it impossible for us to assume that we are in control. It makes it impossible for us to believe that we know better. It makes it impossible for us to believe that we deserve respect or credit or that we have earned God's blessing by our exemplary behavior. That's what leads the centurion to say, I don't even think you should come into my house. I, I, I don't deserve that. And the lack of understanding in that is what leads the Jewish leaders to say, you should do what we say because we declare him worthy. Because we're the ones who have the authority to do that. A little, much too, a little too much self-reliance coming from that crew. The reality is the more we understand who Jesus truly is, the more acutely aware we become of just precisely how unworthy we are of his love. How unworthy we are of his grace. How unworthy we are of his compassion, his kindness, his provision. That's what makes the gospel so astounding. If you believe you deserve it, there is no beauty in it. There's no beauty and delight in receiving your wages, right? You've earned that. That's what I deserve. You're angry if you don't get that, right? Because you worked hard to earn that. Understanding you did not deserve it at all, there was no chance of you ever achieving it, is what makes it feel like a gift. That's what makes it glorious and beautiful. As pastor and author Tim Keller so succinctly put it, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That is the gospel. And as we grow in our understanding of who Jesus is, we grow in our understanding of how we do not deserve him. How utterly unworthy we are of him. And that makes the gospel grow larger and larger and larger in our vision. More and more beautiful. More and more astounding that he would do that for me. That. 
That stirs a sense of awe and wonder in the gospel. And it kills, it destroys our sense of entitlement. While we were yet sinners, utterly unworthy, our Jesus died for us. And who is this Jesus? Paul in Colossians says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself, or bring back into right relationship with Himself, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That is Jesus. Amen. That deserves an amen. That's right. That is our Jesus. And when we truly believe that that is the type of authority that he has, all things created by him and for him, and in him all things hold together. Every atom in existence is held together by his will and can be undone with less than a thought. That is is his authority, and this is the one who died for us so that we could be reconciled to the Father. Surely the centurion does not grasp all of that. But Jesus' point is that he is closer to understanding that than Jesus' own people. And the result is that It encourages him to ask boldly of Jesus. Boldly, confidently even. Assuming that Jesus not only has the power to do it, but would want to. That Jesus not only has the authority to do it, but the character that would make him want to. His faith in Jesus' authority motivates us to ask boldly. As we know, he created it all. It's all his stuff. What, what is too difficult for him to accomplish? He, made, he knit the servant together in the first place. Well, how difficult would it be for him to knit back together whatever had come undone? We truly believe that Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth over all things. We can ask him confidently and we can ask him boldly. James exhorts us, you do not have because you do not ask. Let him ask in faith and with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave in the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that they will receive anything from the Lord, for he is double-minded, unstable in all his ways. When I assume that Jesus is not truly capable or, or not actually willing to do that thing or, or unlikely to respond, I'm expressing more faith in my doubts than I am in Jesus. I'm giving my doubts more authority in my life than I am Jesus. And what happens as a result is those waves 
just toss me like a cork in the ocean. Right? And when I say me, I don't mean that figuratively. I mean me. I, in my flesh, in my natural state, I tend towards pessimism. I, I tend to assume the worst in my most natural state. And, and as a result, I find myself often making excuses for God and saying like, well, he's probably not going to do this thing and, and probably not going to answer this particular, particular prayer. And then as a result, I receive exactly what I expect, which is nothing. That, that reveals in those moments a, a lack of faith in my Jesus. Right? But when I'm operating in my unnatural state, or, or the way Scripture describes it, when, I'm, when I am truly operating in the Spirit, I find myself asking with the same kind of boldness and confidence that my four-year-old displays when he asks me to do something that is clearly impossible. When my four-year-old comes to me and, and, and hands me the, the dust and disintegrated pieces of what used to be a toy and says, Daddy, fix it. I say, buddy... You have destroyed this on an elemental level. I can't, I can't fix this. I, I don't need a tool. I would need a wizard to, to recreate this. I don't even know how you'd manage to break this to this degree. But he assumes, and the last time that this happened, it was amazing, the last time it happened, my, uh, he, he, and I'm, I'm explaining, he doesn't, he's not super rational yet at four, as it turns out, and so he's not understanding all of my, all of my very cleverly communicated arguments in my defense why I cannot fix this. And, and he just, he, he, he goes, Dad, Dad, Joey, Joey, get it, Joey, get it. And he, and he scurries off and he comes back again holding a screwdriver. Because to him, it's like, oh, I've seen you do that thing before. But that's because to him, like fixing it last time was I replaced the batteries. And to him, that's wizardry. He's like, it wasn't working. And then I gave it to my dad. Now it works because... He uses magic to do that. I'm like, buddy, I, the screwdriver worked last time because I just had to like open this little lid and put two more double A's in there. This is in 50 pieces. But he asks with that kind of boldness because he assumes, of course my dad can do this. One of his, his favorite, his, his current bit right now is he wants to sit on everything. I don't know where this came from. But his thing is, if he sees any object, his, his request is, I want to sit on it. Can I sit on that? And it doesn't matter. We're driving down the freeway, and whatever he sees outside, a, a horse, a bus, a tractor, a hill, an industrial windmill, a, a chicken. The other, the, other, the other day, we're driving down the street, and he sees the moon outside. He goes, Daddy, see it, moon. Joey, sit on it? I'm like, buddy, that's, that's irrational. No, you can't, you can't sit on it. He, he will see, he, he has an eagle eye, and so he will spot a plane flying overhead. And then, of course, asks, Daddy, Joey, sit on it? Daddy, Daddy. And he'll come over to me and put the arms up as though all I have to do is lift him up and I can just place him on the plane that is flying Overhead and, and explaining the complications of distance and gravity and acceleration and, and personal and corporate property ownership and all of those things do not convince him in any way that 
It's not my fault. I can't help you sit on this thing. My son assumes that I can get him to and on the plane that is passing 20,000 feet over our heads at 500 miles per hour, no matter how irrational that may be. And when I tell him no, his response is a, is a mix of, uh, of incredulity and, and, and betrayal. Daddy, Joey want it. But I've, but I've asked you, why would you refuse me this? Why would you so callously refuse me this simple request? And he doesn't, under, he doesn't understand. I can't, I can't do that at all. But in my, in, in my son's mind, he asks, assuming, well, of course my father can do this. Why on earth would I ask with less faith and less boldness and less confidence in the one who actually can do anything? That is actually the irrational position for us. To assume that our father is in any way limited. To assume that there is anything too difficult, too great, too complicated, too impossible. For the one who created life, the universe, and everything to possibly understand and accomplish. Should I ask with less faith? I should hope not. I would argue the two places where boldness lives and flourishes are childlike faith and faith in our Jesus' absolute authority. When you rest in those things, I have nothing but boldness and confidence because what is possibly, what is impossible for my father? In the middle resides doubt and self-reliance and pessimism, realism, practicality, all those things that lead to anxiety and more faith in our doubts than in our Jesus. Faith in our Jesus authority grows our sense of wonder as well. Because when, when we understand who he is clearly enough, and I stop relying on my self-reliance and my illusion of control, I submit to his absolute authority, I ask him in boldness and in confidence to accomplish what I know he is capable of accomplishing, I actually begin to see him do those things. And my sense of wonder ignites now, it doesn't tell us what happens. The narrative ends at, and they went back to the house, and they found the servant well. I don't feel like we're reaching too far into conjecture to assume there was at least a low-grade sense of wonder in that house. You think that's a safe assumption? I don't want to read inappropriately into Scripture something that isn't there, but I feel like there was some excitement in the home to see this beloved member of the household miraculously and instantly brought from moments 
till death to newness of life. That stirs our sense of wonder when we see that. That is, in fact, the standard result of seeing firsthand the extraordinary activity of our Heavenly Father. Right? When we see a miraculously healed body, a miraculously healed marriage, a miraculously transformed heart, that stirs our sense of wonder. All those things are miraculous and that stirs our excitement and our awe in the God who can do those things. And for far too many of us, we've lost our sense of wonder in this. For far too many of us, most of this book is the dud. Most of this book is too mundane and, and too difficult. Most of our faith is just routine and it's these, these habits that we walk through, but, but they're, they're largely lifeless. They're, they're more duty than passion. They're more rule following and motivated by true love and delight in the God who has made us his own. And I think it might be a little counterintuitive that the answer to that, or one of the answers to that, is a greater understanding and faith in Jesus' authority. Because let's face it, we don't love authority. Unless we have it, then we super love it. But if someone else has it, and we don't, it's not our favorite. But without understanding that, what, what we lose is our confidence. What we lose is our sense of wonder. What we lose is our delight in our Father's provision because we think we must seize control. We must do it ourselves. And then as a result, our faith becomes dry and heartless and lifeless and routine. And I would urge us this morning to remember The faith of the centurion, the extraordinary, inexplicable faith of the centurion here. Who seems to understand before it was even written, James' urging of, you do not have because you do not ask, and when you do ask, you ask with the wrong intentions. His prayer was answered because he asked. He asked boldly, he asked confidently, but his confidence was not in who he was or his worthiness or what he had accomplished. His boldness and his confidence was in who Jesus was and what he truly believed he was able to accomplish. And I truly believe that understanding Jesus' authority radically alters our response to him and to everything else, as it turns out as it allows our sense of wonder to be stirred, as we pray boldly and confidently and in full surrender to the one who holds life, the universe, and everything together in his grasp. Father, please help us to believe that. We, we believe, Father, we are in this room because on some level we believe, but we need help with our unbelief. Spirit, help us 
to see more of Jesus, to understand more of Jesus, to know more, not just not more about him, but, but to know him, to trust in his authority and, and, and to trust that he uses that authority for our good and for his glory. Grow our confidence in him, grow our delight in him, and grow our joy through all of those things. Jesus, we love you, we need you every day, and it is in your precious name that we pray, and for the sake of your name that we live. Amen.